Section 58 of Curiosities of Literature, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corinne LePage. Curiosities of Literature, Volume 3, by Isaac Disraeli. Secret History of Charles I and His First Parliaments, Part 2. These are instances drawn from the inferior classes of society, but the same spirit actuated the country gentlemen. One instance represents many. George Gatesby, of Northamptonshire, being committed to prison as a lone recusant, alleged, among other reasons for his non-compliance, that he considered that this loan might become a precedent, and that every precedent he was told by the Lord President was a flower of the prerogative. The Lord President told him that he lied. Gatesby shook his head, observing, I come not here to contend with your lordship, but to suffer. Lord Suffolk, then interposing, entreated the Lord President would not too far urge his kinsman, Mr. Gatesby. This country gentleman waived any kindness he might owe to kindred, declaring that he would remain master of his own purse. The prisons were crowded with these lone recusants, as well as with those who had sinned in the freedom of their opinions. The country gentlemen ensured their popularity by their committals, and many stout resistors of the loans were returned in the following Parliament against their own wishes. Footnote. It is curious to observe that the Westminster elections, in the fourth year of Charles's reign, were exactly of the same turbulent character as those which we witness in our days. The Duke had counted by his interest to bring in Sir Robert Pye. The contest was severe, but accompanied by some of those ludicrous electioneering scenes which still amuse the mob. Whenever Sir Robert Pye's party cried, A pie, a pie, a pie! The adverse party would cry, A pudding, a pudding, a pudding! And others, A lie, a lie, a lie! This Westminster election of two hundred years ago ended as we have seen some others. They rejected all who had urged the payment of loans, and, passing by such men as Sir Robert Cotton and their last representative, they fixed on a brewer and a grocer for the two members for Westminster. End of footnote. The friends of these knights and country gentlemen flocked to their prisons, and when they petitioned for more liberty and air during the summer, it was policy to grant their request but it was also policy that they should not reside in their own counties. This relaxation was only granted to those who, living in the south, consented to sojourn in the north, while the dwellers in the north were to be lodged in the south. In the country, the disturbed scenes assumed even a more alarming appearance than in London. They not only would not provide money, but when money was offered by government, the men refused to serve, a conscription was not then known, and it became a question long debated in the Privy Council whether those who would not accept press money should not be tried by martial law. I preserve in the note a curious piece of secret information. Footnote Extract from a manuscript letter On Friday last I hear, but as a secret, that it was debated at the council table whether our Essex men, who refused to take press money, should not be punished by martial law, and hanged up on the next tree to their dwellings, 
for an example of terror to others my lord keeper who had been long silent when in conclusion it came to his course to speak told the lords that as far as he understood the law none were liable to martial law but martial men if these had taken press money and afterwards run from their colours they might be punished in that manner but yet they were no soldiers and refused to be secondly he thought a subsidy new by law could not be pressed against his will for a foreign service it being supposed in law the service of his purse excused that of his person unless his own country were in danger and he appealed to my lord treasurer and my lord president whether it was not so who both assented it was so though some of them faintly as unwilling to have been urged to such an answer so it is thought that proposition is dashed and it will be tried what may be done in the star chamber against these refractories End of footnote. the great novelty and symptom of the times was the scattering of letters sealed letters addressed to the leading men of the country were found hanging on bushes anonymous letters were dropped in shops and streets which gave notice that the day was fast approaching when such a work was to be wrought in england as never was the like which will be for our good addresses multiplied to all true-hearted englishmen a groom detected in spreading such seditious papers and brought into the inexorable star chamber was fined three thousand pounds the leniency of the punishment was rather regretted by two bishops if it was ever carried into execution the unhappy man must have remained a groom who never after crossed a horse there is one difficult duty of an historian which is too often passed over by the party writer it is to pause whenever he feels himself warming with the passions of the multitude or becoming the blind apologist of arbitrary power an historian must transform himself into the characters which he is representing and throw himself back into the times which he is opening possessing himself of their feelings and tracing their actions he may then at least hope to discover truths which may equally interest the honourable men of all parties this reflection has occurred from the very difficulty into which i am now brought shall we at once condemn the king for these arbitrary measures it is however very possible that they were never in his contemplation involved in inextricable difficulties according to his feelings he was betrayed by parliament and he scorned to barter their favour by that vulgar traffic of treachery the immolation of the single victim who had long attached his personal affections a man at least as much envied as hated that hard lesson had not yet been inculcated on a british sovereign that his bosom must be a blank for all private affection and had that lesson been taught the character of charles was destitute of all aptitude for it to reign without a refractory parliament and to find among the people themselves subjects more loyal than their representatives was an experiment and a fatal one under charles the liberty of the subject when the necessities of the state pressed on the sovereign was matter of discussion disputed as often as assumed the divines were proclaiming as rebellious those who refused their contributions to aid the government and the law sages alleged precedents for raising supplies in the manner which charles had adopted footnote a member of the house in james i's time called this race of divines spaniels to the court and wolves to the people 
Dr. Mainwaring, Dr. Sibthorpe, and Dean Bargrave were seeking for ancient precedents to maintain absolute monarchy and to inculcate passive obedience. Bargrave had this passage in his sermon. It was the speech of a man renowned for wisdom in our age, that if he were commanded to put forth to sea in a ship that had neither mast nor tackling, he would do it. And being asked what wisdom that were, replied, the wisdom must be in him that hath power to command, not in him that conscience binds to obey. Sibthorpe, after he published his sermon, immediately had his house burnt down. Dr. Mainwaring says a manuscript letter writer sent the other day to a friend of mine to help him to all the ancient precedents he could find to strengthen his opinion for absolute monarchy who answered him he could help him in nothing but only to hang him, and that if he lived till a parliament, or etc., he should be sure of a halter. Mainwaring afterwards submitted to parliament, but after the dissolution got a free pardon. The panic of popery was a great evil. The divines, under Laud, appeared to approach to Catholicism, but it was probably only a project of reconciliation between the two churches, which Elizabeth, james and charles equally wished mr cousins a letter writer is censured for superstition in this bitter style mr cousins has impudently made three editions of his prayer book and one which gives him away in private different from the published ones an audacious fellow whom my lord of durham greatly admireth i doubt if he be a sound protestant he was so blind at evensong on candlemas day that he could not see to read prayers in the minster with less than three hundred and forty candles, whereof sixty he caused to be placed about the high altar. Besides, he caused the picture of our Saviour, supported by two angels, to be set in the choir. The committee is very hot against him, no matter if they trounce him. This was Cousins, who survived the revolution, and returning with Charles the Second, was raised to the see of Durham. The charitable institutions he has left are most munificent. End of footnote. Selden, whose learned industry was as vast as the amplitude of his mind, had to seek for the freedom of the subject in the dust of the records of the tower, and the omnipotence of parliaments, if any human assembly may be invested with such supernatural greatness, had not yet awakened the hoar antiquity of popular liberty. A general spirit of insurrection, rather than insurrection itself, had suddenly raised some strange appearances through the kingdom. The remonstrance of Parliament had unquestionably quickened the feelings of the people, but yet the lovers of peace and the reverencers of royalty were not a few. Money and men were procured to send out the army and the fleet. More concealed causes may be suspected to have been at work many of the heads of the opposition were pursuing some secret machinations about this time i find many mysterious stories indications of secret societies and other evidences of the intrigues of the popular party little matters sometimes more important than they appear are suitable to our minute sort of history in november sixteen twenty six a rumour spread that the king was to be visited by an ambassador from the president of the society of the rosy cross he was indeed a heteroclite ambassador for he is described as a youth with never a hair on his face in fact 
a child who was to conceal the mysterious personage which he was for a moment to represent. He appointed Sunday afternoon to come to court, attended by thirteen coaches. He was to proffer to his majesty, provided the king accepted his advice, three millions to put in his coffers, and by his secret counsels he was to unfold matters of moment and secrecy. A Latin letter was delivered to David Ramsay of the Clock, to hand over to the king. A copy of it has been preserved in a letter of the times, but it is so unmeaning that it could have had no effect on the king, who, however, declared that he would not admit him to an audience, and that if he could tell where the president of the Rosy Cross was to be found, unless he made good his offer, he would hang him at the court gates. This served the town and country for talk till the appointed Sunday had passed over, and no ambassador was visible. Some considered this as the plotting of crazy brains, but others imagined it to be an attempt to speak with the king in private on matters respecting the duke. There was also discovered, by letters received from Rome, a whole parliament of Jesuits sitting in a fair-hanged vault in Clerkenwell. Sir John Cook would have alarmed the parliament that on St. Joseph's Day these were to have occupied their places. Ministers are supposed to sometimes have conspirators for the nonce. Sir Dudley Diggs, in the opposition as usual, would not believe in any such political necromancers, but such a party were discovered. Cook would have insinuated that the French ambassador had persuaded Louis that the divisions between Charles and his people had been raised by his ingenuity, and was reward for the intelligence. This is not unlikely. After all, the Parliament of Jesuits might have been a secret college of the order, for among other things seized on, was a considerable library. When the Parliament was sitting, a sealed letter was thrown under the door, with this superscription, Cursed be the man that finds this letter, and delivers it not to the House of Commons. The sergeant-at-arms delivered it to the Speaker, who would not open it till the House had chosen a committee of twelve members to inform them whether it was fit to be read. Sir Edward Coke, after having read two or three lines, stopped, and according to my authority, durst read no further, but immediately sealing it, the committee thought fit to send it to the king, who they say, on reading it through, cast it into the fire, and sent the House of Commons thanks for their wisdom in not publishing it, and for the discretion of the committee in so far tendering his honour as not to read it out, when they once perceived that it touched his majesty. Footnote I deliver this fact as I find it in a private letter, but it is noticed in the journals of the House of Commons, 23rd Juni, number 4, Caroly Regis. Sir Edward Coke reporteth that they find that, enclosed in the letter, to be unfit for any subject's ear to hear, read but one line and a half of it, and could not endure to read more of it. It was ordered to be sealed and delivered into the king's hands by eight members, and to acquaint his majesty with the place and time of finding it, particularly that upon reading of one line and a half at most, they would read no more, but sealed it up and brought it to the house. End of footnote. Others, besides the freedom of speech, introduced another form, a speech without doors, which was distributed to the members of the house, it is in all respects a remarkable one, occupying ten folio pages in the first volume of Rushworth. Some in office appear to have employed extraordinary proceedings of a similar nature. 
an intercepted letter written from the archduchess to the king of spain was delivered by sir h martin at the council board on new year's day who found it in some papers relating to the navy the duke immediately said he would show it to the king and accompanied by several lords went into his majesty's closet the letter was written in french it advised the spanish court to make a sudden war with england for several reasons his majesty's want of skill to govern himself the weakness of his council in not daring to acquaint him with the truth want of money disunion of the subjects hearts from their prince etc the king only observed that the writer forgot that the archduchess writes to the king of spain in spanish and sends her letters overland i have to add an important fact i find certain evidence that the heads of the opposition were busily active in thwarting the measures of government dr samuel turner the member for shrewsbury called on sir john cage and desired to speak to him privately his errand was to entreat him to resist the loan and to use his power with others to obtain this purpose the following information comes from sir john cage himself dr turner being desired to stay he would not a minute but instantly took horse saying he had more places to go and time pressed that there was a company of them had divided themselves into all parts every one having a quarter assigned to him to perform this service for the commonwealth this was written in november sixteen twenty six this unquestionably amounts to a secret confederacy watching out of parliament as well as in and those strange appearances of popular defection exhibited in the country which i have described were in great part the consequences of the machinations and active intrigues of the popular party footnote i have since discovered by a manuscript letter that this dr turner was held in contempt by the king that he was ridiculed at court which he haunted for his want of veracity in a word that he was a disappointed courtier and a footnote the king was not disposed to try a third parliament the favourite perhaps to regain that popular favour which his greatness had lost him is said in private letters to have been twice on his knees to intercede for a new one the elections however foreboded no good and a letter-writer connected with the court in giving an account of them prophetically declared we are without question undone the king's speech opens with the spirit which he himself felt but which he could not communicate the times are for action wherefore for example's sake i mean not to spend much time in words if you which god forbid should not do your duties in contributing what the state at this time needs i must in discharge of my conscience use those other means which god hath put into my hands to save that which the follies of some particular men may otherwise hazard to lose he added with the loftiness of ideal majesty take not this as a threatening for i scorn to threaten any but my equals but as an admonition from him that both out of nature and duty hath most care of your preservations and prosperities and in a more friendly tone he requested them to remember a thing to the end that we may forget it you may imagine that i come here with a doubt of success remembering the distractions of the last meeting but i assure you that i shall very easily forget and forgive what is past a most crowded house now met composed of the wealthiest men 
for a lord, who probably considered that property was a true balance of power, estimated that they were able to buy the upper house his majesty only accepted. The aristocracy of wealth had already begun to be felt. Some ill omens of the parliament appeared. Sir Robert Phillips moved for a general fast. We had one for the plague, which it pleased God to deliver us from, and we have now so many plagues of the commonwealth about his majesty's person that we have need of such, an act of humiliation. Sir Edward Coke held it most necessary, because there are, I fear, some devils that will not be cast out but by fasting and prayer. Many of the speeches in this great council of the kingdom are as admirable pieces of composition as exist in the language. Even the court party were moderate, extenuating rather than pleading for the late necessities. But the evil spirit of party, however veiled, was walking amidst them all. A letter-writer represents the natural state of feelings. Some of the Parliament talked desperately, while others, of as high a course to enforce money if they yield not. Such is the perpetual action and reaction of public opinion, when one side will give too little, the other is sure to desire too much. The Parliament granted subsidies. Sir John Cook having brought up the report to the King, Charles expressed great satisfaction, and declared that he felt, now, more happy than any of his predecessors. Inquiring of Sir John by how many voices he had carried it, Cook replied, but by one, at which his majesty seemed appalled and asked how many were against him. Cook answered, none, the unanimity of the house made all but one voice, at which his majesty wept. If Charles shed tears, or as Cook himself expresses it in his report to the house, was much affected, the emotion was profound, for on all sudden emergencies Charles displayed an almost unparalleled command over the exterior violence of his feelings. The favourite himself sympathised with the tender joy of his royal master, and before the king voluntarily offered himself as a peace sacrifice. In his speech at the council table, he entreats the king that he, who had the honour to be his majesty's favourite, might now give up that title to them. A warm, genuine feeling probably prompted these words. To open my heart, please pardon me a word more. I must confess I have long lived in pain. Sleep hath given me no rest, favours and fortune no content. Such have been my secret sorrows to be thought the man of separation, and that divided the king from his people, and them from him. But I hope it shall appear they were some mistaken minds that would have made me the evil spirit that walketh between a good master and a loyal people. Buckingham added that for the good of his country he was willing to sacrifice his honours, and since his plurality of offices had been so strongly accepted against, that he was content to give up the master of the horse to Marcus Hamilton, and the warden of the Cinque Ports to the Earl of Carlisle, and was willing that the Parliament should appoint another admiral for all services at sea. It is as certain as human evidence can authenticate that on the king's side all was grateful affection, and that on Buckingham's there was a most earnest desire to win the favours of Parliament, and what are stronger than all human evidence, those unerring principles in human nature itself, which are the secret springs of the heart, were working in the breasts of the king and his minister, for neither were tyrannical. 
the king undoubtedly sighed to meet parliament with the love which he had at first professed he declared that he should now rejoice to meet with his people often charles had no innate tyranny in his constitutional character and buckingham at times was susceptible of misery amidst his greatness as i have elsewhere shown it could not have been imagined that the luckless favourite on the present occasion should have served as a pretext to set again in motion the chaos of evil can any candid mind suppose that the king or the duke meditated the slightest insult on the patriotic party or would in the least have disturbed the apparent reconciliation yet it so happened secretary cook at the close of his report of the king's acceptance of the subsidies mentioned that the duke had fervently beseeched the king to grant the house all their desires perhaps the mention of the duke's name was designed to ingratiate him into their toleration sir john elliot caught fire at the very name of the duke and vehemently checked the secretary for having dared to introduce it declaring that they knew of no other distinction but of king and subjects by intermingling a subject's speech with the king's message he seemed to derogate from the honour and majesty of a king nor would it become any subject to bear himself in such fashion as if no grace ought to descend from the king to the people nor any loyalty ascend from the people to the king but through him only this speech was received by many with acclamations some cried out well spoken sir john elliot it marks the heated state of the political atmosphere where even the lightest coruscation of a hated name made it burst into flames i have often suspected that sir john elliot by his vehement personality must have borne a personal antipathy to buckingham i have never been enabled to ascertain the fact but i find that he has left in manuscript a collection of satires or verses being chiefly invectives against the duke of buckingham to whom he bore a bitter and most inveterate enmity could we sometimes discover the motives of those who first had political revolutions we should find how greatly personal hatreds have actuated them in deeds which have come down to us in the form of patriotism and how often the revolutionary spirit disguises its private passions by its public conduct footnote modern history would afford more instances than perhaps some of us suspect i cannot pass over an illustration of my principle which i shall take from two very notorious politicians watt tyler and sir william walworth modern history would afford more instances than perhaps some of us suspect i cannot pass over an illustration of my principle which i shall take from two very notorious politicians watt tyler and sir william walworth watt when in servitude had been beaten by his master richard lyons a great merchant of wines and a sheriff of london this chastisement working on an evil disposition appears never to have been forgiven and when this radical assumed his short-lived dominion he had his old master beheaded and his head carried before him on the point of a spear so grafton tells us to the eternal obloquy of this arch jacobin who was a crafty fellow and of an excellent wit but wanting grace i would not sully the patriotic blow which ended the rebellion with the rebel yet there are secrets in history sir william walsworth the ever-famous mayor of london as stowe designates him has left the immortality of his name to one of our suburbs but having discovered in stowe's survey 
that walworth was the landlord of the stews on the bankside which he farmed out to the dutch vrouws and which watt had pulled down i am inclined to suspect that private feeling first knocked down the saucy ribald and then thrust him through and through with his dagger and that there was as much of personal vengeance as patriotism which crushed the demolisher of so much valuable property End of footnote. but the supplies which had raised tears from the fervent gratitude of charles though voted were yet withheld they resolved that grievances and supplies go hand in hand the commons entered deeply into constitutional points of the highest magnitude the curious erudition of selden and coke was combined with the ardour of patriots who merit no inferior celebrity though not having consecrated their names by their laborious literature we only discover them in the obscure annals of parliament to our history composed by writers of different principles i refer the reader for the argument of lawyers and the spirit of the commons my secret history is only its supplement the king's prerogative and the subject's liberty were points hard to distinguish and were established but by contest sometimes the king imagined that the house pressed not upon the abuses of power but only upon power itself sometimes the commons doubted whether they had anything of their own to give while their property and their persons seemed equally insecure despotism seemed to stand on one side and faction on the other liberty trembled the conference of the commons before the lords on the freedom and person of the subject was admirably conducted by selden and by coke when the king's attorney affected to slight the learned arguments and precedents pretending to consider them as mutilated out of the records and as proving rather against the commons than for them sir edward coke rose affirming to the house upon his skill in the law that it lay not under mr attorney's cap to answer any one of their arguments selden declared that he had written out all the records from the tower the exchequer and the king's bench with his own hand and would engage his head mr attorney should not find in all these archives a single precedent omitted mr littleton said that he had examined every one syllabatum and whoever said they were mutilated spoke false of so ambiguous and delicate a nature was then the liberty of the subject that it seems they considered it to depend on precedence a startling message on the twelfth of april was sent by the king for dispatch of business the house struck with astonishment desired to have it repeated they remained sad and silent no one cared to open the debate a whimsical politician sir francis nethersole suddenly started up entreating leave to tell his last night's dream footnote i have formed my idea of sir francis nethersole from some strange incidents in his political conduct which i have read in some contemporary letters he was however a man of some eminence had been a raider for the university of cambridge agent for james i with the princes of the union in germany and also secretary to the queen of bohemia he founded and endowed a free school at polesworth in warwickshire and a footnote some laughing at him he observed that kingdoms had been saved by dreams allowed to proceed he said he saw two good pastures a flock of sheep was in the one and a bellwether alone in the other a great ditch was between them and a narrow bridge over the ditch he was interrupted by the speaker 
who told him that it stood not with the gravity of the house to listen to dreams, but the house was inclined to hear him out. The sheep would sometimes go over to the bellwether, or the bellwether to the sheep. Once, both met on the narrow bridge, and the question was who should go back, since both could not go on without danger. One sheep gave counsel that the sheep on the bridge should lie on their bellies, and let the bellwether go over their backs. The application of this dilemma he left to the house. It must be confessed that the bearing of the point was more ambiguous than some of the important ones that formed the matters of their debates. Davis sum non sedipus. It is probable that this fantastical politician did not vote with the opposition, for Elliot, Wentworth, and Coke protested against the interpretation of dreams in the house. When the attorney-general moved that the liberties of the subject might be moderated, to reconcile the differences between themselves and the sovereign, Sir Edward Coke observed that the true mother would never consent to the dividing of her child. On this Buckingham swore that Coke intimated that the king, his master, was the prostitute of the state. Coke protested against the misinterpretation. The dream of Nethersoul and the metaphor of Coke were alike dangerous in parliamentary discussion. End of section 58 Recording by Corinne LePage